I was working in machine learning computer science for a while. I ended up getting my PhD in it. And there was sort of a point in 2011 where what's known as AI now started working. You could make kind of stuff happen in a lab, but these things weren't being used in the public generally. But once I started working with systems and saw them actually starting to work, in my case, I was working on language generation. So starting to generate language that was human-like and actually beating humans according to all the metrics we had. That's when I started actually to get sort of scared as opposed to excited because I immediately started seeing the mistakes it was making and the different kind of patterns it was picking up, right? This is the Innovation Civilization podcast and I'm Wahid. And that person you just heard talk about how AI is slowly creeping into our society is Margaret Mitchell. Margaret is one of the world's leading artificial intelligence experts. She formerly founded and co-led Google's ethical AI division. She has published over 50 blockbuster papers on natural language generation, assistive technology, computer vision, and AI ethics. And she also holds multiple patents in these very areas as well. Her foundational work in this field has received numerous awards and has been implemented by technology companies all around the world. On the episode, we start all the way from defining what is artificial intelligence to begin with. When you hear like computer scientists talk about AI, they're generally referring to machine learning, which is, I would say, a type of technology that where you can give it a lot of data and the system will learn from that data in order to create new content, make new predictions. Ethics comes from the Greek word ethos, which basically means the moral character of something. So we discuss with Margaret the role of the field of ethics that's actually a couple of millennia old on how it informs artificial intelligence and its development as well. Essentially, when you're dealing with ethics, you're dealing with prioritizations and values. You're thinking about what is good, what is goodness, how should I behave, what does it mean? to behave in different ways. It's similar in AI, where you're still thinking through what are the different values at play? Like, so we all have different moralities. We all have different values. Religion is a great example of how sort of different value systems can change what we prioritize. And, you know, that's the same thing when you're working on ethical AI. You're being informed by all of these different sorts of things. When you're designing an AI product or an AI model, there are different biases that can actually creep into that development. With Margaret, we covered the different kinds of biases that can happen and the most devastating ones as well. So when we talk about biases in AI, there's essentially two kinds. One is the cognitive biases that we all have as humans. So, you know, if you've ever studied like optical illusions, you understand some visual biases we have, how we like fill in information when we don't have all the information. So that's a kind of cognitive bias. But there are also cognitive biases like confirmation bias. So uh, tending to pick up the things that confirm your beliefs and not really noticing as much the things that don't, right? And then there's also things like default bias, anchoring bias. There's just tons of different kinds of cognitive biases that we have that help us as humans navigate the world. And then the other kind of bias we tend to talk about is the bias that has to do with disproportionate performance across different people. So an AI system that works well for white people, but works poorly for black people. So both are sort of at play when we talk about bias in AI. 
we also talk about the crux of the problem with ethical AI and what are some of the solutions that we are seeing nowadays to alleviate those problems. A lot of those decisions are just made by like a sole programmer making a decision in a code about like what variables to use for what. And part of the work in ethical AI is trying to sort of expose that there are a lot of decisions here. And so it shouldn't just be one or two people sort of half thinking about it as they create a product or create a system, but actually experts in society, like social scientists, mm-hmm. weighing in on what kinds of things to avoid and what kind of things to prioritize. So we're starting to see that pick up as ethical AI is sort of becoming its own field. But that basically means that the normative distinctions need to be informed by people who understand society in a way that I could say engineers like me often don't. We also briefly covered on AI and policymaking. And if you are a policymaker anywhere around the world, how should you be thinking about AI? Should you start regulating AI like you regulate drugs or is it not. With drugs, with pharmaceuticals, you want to make sure they're rigorously tested. And that doesn't exist for AI. And so ideally, there could be some regulation that says it should be rigorously tested, right? Like similar to drugs. So there's definitely a lot of overlaps there and a lot we can learn from the past. Obviously, there's new challenges as well, as a lot of regulators don't fully understand. I don't think anyone fully understands what's happening in the development of AI. So there's a lot of sort of artistry to creating regulation for AI and not hampering development that would actually make AI more fair. That and much more coming right up in this episode. Hi, Margaret. Thank you very much for joining the Innovation Civilization podcast. What a great, great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. So tell us about kind of about yourself. Every time we start a podcast, we basically want to talk about the people. And can you tell us how you got started in the world of AI and ML ethics? And why is this topic so important to you personally? Yeah, I was working in machine learning, computer science for a while. I ended up getting my PhD in And there was sort of a point in 2011 where what's known as AI now started working. It was sort of before then, it was sort of toy problems, toy data sets. And, you know, you could make kind of stuff happen in a lab, but these things weren't being used in the public generally. But once I started working with systems and saw them actually starting to work, in my case, I was working on language generation. So starting to generate language that was human-like and actually beating humans according to all the metrics we had, that's when I started actually to get sort of scared as opposed to excited because I immediately started seeing the mistakes it was making and the different kind of patterns it was picking up. And this so was instead in what of, year? This was in, I want to say like 2013, 2014. Cool. Right, yeah, right, right. was when I first really started like going down the ethics route seriously because instead of saying like, oh, our, you know, my technology is working now, let me make it even better. I was sort of at a point where I was like, oh, no, this is working now. People are going to use it. And we haven't taken care of any of the issues that are there for actually people to be using it, right? So like, we've developed machine learning for so long, we haven't had people like actually using it. Mm-hmm. Now suddenly, they're going to use it. And we don't have any of the sort of precautions in place. So that okay. led me down a path of like working on sort of fairness evaluation and biases and things like that. 
Okay, that makes sense. And just to get into the meat of things here, so you work with artificial intelligence. How would you define artificial intelligence? The reason I ask is because first, I want to make it super crystal clear to our listeners that what exactly we're talking about. And for context, as I was kind of preparing for this episode, I came across this kind of ludicrous account of how it's apparently like some Senate briefing under the Obama administration on AI. And they basically analyzed the paper that was circulated after and found that if you replace the word AI with the word digital, a lot of the sentences would still make sense, you know? So I think there's quite a bit of guff out there when it comes to the exact kind of essence of AI, basically what it is. So can you define what AI is for us properly? Well, I think it's fair to say that AI as used does tend to mean like technology or does tend to mean digital. It has Mm -hmm. become so overused that it's like my remote control is AI, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say that those of us in computer science actually had to make a switch from saying machine learning to saying AI. Mm-hmm. So a sub part, you know, sort of if you look at circles upon circles, like yeah. a circle within AI is machine learning. And so when you hear like computer scientists talk about AI, they're generally referring to machine learning, which is, I would say, a type of technology that where you can give it a lot of data and mm-hmm. the system will learn from that data in order to create new content content, make new predictions, that kind of stuff. So that's sort of generally what I mean when I say AI, when I'm talking about my work and I say I'm working on AI, I mean machine learning, but it's, you know, it is a more general term. Okay, that makes sense. And just out of curiosity for myself, so how would you differentiate between machine learning and deep learning? Is one of these subset of the other or yeah? Yeah, it's another subset. Yeah. So just like machine learning is a subset of AI, deep learning is a subset of machine learning. That's right. And how is it exactly a subset? Like, What's different? So it's called deep because there's a lot more levels that the input has to go through. Previously, in sort of traditional machine learning, you would build up networks where you specify like this node goes to that node, sort of Bayesian models and things like this, and define how the probability works. And you had like some control over how information was passed and what the representations looked like as it was passed. Deep learning was when uh, basically, I'm trying to like not... I'm trying to stay like general high level here. So it's a little tricky. But deep learning is like essentially when people started adding more and more what are called layers, layers of a neural network. But these are essentially moments of time within the computations where specific kind of changes occur. So aggregating different things, putting constraints on different numbers, thresholds, these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. and like just a ton of those. And Mm -hmm. so the more of these kinds of things called layers there are, the deeper the learning is. And so mm-hmm. machine learning, if you're familiar with linear regression from school, mm-hmm. logistic regression, that is the basis of deep learning. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that from the input to the output of linear regression, you have a bunch of other computations mm-hmm. that who knows what it's doing, but mm-hmm. at the end is still giving you the kind of output you would get from logistic or linear regression. And mm-hmm. that's essentially what deep learning is. At the top, it's mm-hmm. usually that same sigmoid that mm-hmm. we have in logistic regression. Okay, that's pretty cool. If I'm to kind of summarize the organic charts, there's AI, artificial intelligence, and then there's some like symbolic AI, and then there's like machine learning. And under ML, you've got like deep learning. Is that kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, summary. Okay, cool. That's that's quite interesting. Thanks for pegging our goalposts a little bit and then helping us understand what we're talking about here in uh, pretty layman terms, really. So let's get right 
to it in terms of ethics, right? Mm -hmm. I know that you work with ethics quite a bit, ethical AI and ethical ML. And I'm just wondering and trying to understand basically how do you define ethics and how do you go about talking about ethics? Because this is something that I understand that the kind of Greek philosophers all the way from Aristotle, Plato and Rousseau is trying to define basically what is ethics and what is an ethical society and what have you. And then we are talking about ethics in AI. So yeah. how do you think about this kind of whole concept? It's a great question. There's a lot of misconceptions around it. So first, I should sort of specify I am a computer scientist by training, not an ethicist. And so mm -hmm. I've yeah. done my my best sort of learn about ethics. And I, you know, I took some undergrad courses on it and things like that. And so my uh, understanding is through the lens of being someone trained in computer science, not ethics. But essentially, when you're dealing with ethics, you're dealing with prioritizations and values. You're thinking about like, what is good? What is goodness? How should I behave? What does it mean to behave in different? It's similar or sort of the same in AI, where you're still thinking through what are the different values at play. So you can imagine one value being goodness, as well as one value being like transparency. So, you know, being honest and open. And then those sorts of values are those that you sort of prioritize among when you're working on ethical AI in order to figure out how it should be developed in light of the foreseeable downstream uses and applications and contexts. Mm -hmm. So you're really thinking through different value systems, just like you do with ethics and looking at them through different lenses that are informed by like deontological ethics, virtue ethics, consequentialism, all these mm -hmm. different kinds of ways of looking at different values and prioritizing among them, and then deciding sort of based on that, how things should be developed. Yeah, that makes sense. So what you're almost saying is that there's a human layer at first that needs to decide exactly. what is good, what is bad yep. for society. Yep. And then you go on and train your AI ML model based on those kind of mental hooks that you've exactly. basically developed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a really key part of ethical AI too, is recognizing that it starts at people. It starts mm -hmm. at society. I think mm -hmm. traditionally with sort of machine learning and deep learning, the idea is that it starts at data because it takes in mm -hmm. data. When you're thinking about ethical AI, you realize that before the data is the people. And so really, that's where you start thinking when you're working on more ethical AI. That makes sense. And would you say basically that in this field of ethical AI, the fact that different people in the world and parts of the world have different ethics means that the AI systems they develop are going to be slightly different to each yeah. other? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right, right? Like, so we all have different moralities. We all have different values. Religion is a great example of how mm -hmm. sort of different value systems can change what we prioritize. And, you know, that's the same thing when you're working on ethical AI, you're being informed by all of these different sorts of things. You personally, as a developer, or you within the context of an organization, prioritize the values that are sort of important for that entity for you or the organization. And that is going to be different person to person or organization to organization. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to make a comment on the different kind of values, but let's bookmark it for now. I'm going to come back to this. Let's get into the thick of things of what you specialize in. And I saw this kind of chart on your webpage about 
different biases that occur in AI. Can you tell us what are the different types of biases that occur in AI and how are you kind of categorize them? And can we maybe run through some of the most devastating ones and how they happen? Yeah, a nice positive way of looking at things. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about biases in AI, we're, we tend to be talking about a couple things. One is the cognitive biases that we all have as humans. So, you know, if you've ever studied like optical illusions, you understand some visual biases we have, how we like fill in information when we don't have all the information. So that's a kind of cognitive bias. But there are also cognitive biases like confirmation. So to pick up the things that confirm your beliefs and not really noticing as much the things that don't, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's things like default bias, anchoring bias. There's just tons of different kinds of cognitive biases that we have that help us as humans navigate the world, sort of take the infinite set of things that we could be interpreting in the universe mm -hmm. and sort of make it more like discrete things that we can process with our human brains. So those are cognitive biases and those get reflected in AI. So that's one issue. And then the other kind of bias we tend to talk about is the bias that has to do with disproportionate performance across different people. An AI system that works well for white people, but works mm -hmm. poorly for black people. So both are sort of at play when we talk about bias in AI, and they're related in a lot of ways. One of the ways that they're most related is when it comes to things like racism, sexism, and prejudice. And so these are cognitive biases that we have as humans, then they get reflected in the kind of data that we have. And then that gets mm -hmm. picked up by machine learning models. And that ends up meaning that a system will perform less well across different racial categories or across different gender categories, in mm -hmm. part as a function of the inherent racism and sexism in the humans at the start. So can you conclude that bias in AI is basically human bias? Yeah, I would say um, it's laundered human bias. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. I like that word. So can you talk about the pipeline exactly of where the biases come in? So you mentioned about the data, and that's right. quite important. Where else are the biases coming in? Yeah. Well, first, before the data is the people, right? So that's our okay. cognitive stuff. And then there's what we say in the data. And then there's the sampling biases from what's collected from the data. You know, what things get sampled. This is sort of a statistical bias, sampling bias. Then that goes into a machine learning system that trains on that data, that learns from that data. And in the construction of that machine learning model, there are decisions made that further can create different kinds of model produced biases. So for example, your choice of loss function, which is essentially as you're training, how do you know if you're right or wrong? right? And when you're working on machine learning, you specify what's called a loss function, which tells you as you're learning if you're right or wrong essentially. You make algorithms that get it to go more towards the right <laughs> than the wrong. But your choice of defining what's right and wrong, so your loss function or your objective function, that will bias the model in various ways. And then as well as your architecture choices. So how things get passed through the model, what things get uh, kind of blurred together and what things get specified. All of those end up creating different kinds of biases that the model will then have. And then from there, you go to evaluate and 
then that's where you can find some of these things by doing disaggregated evaluation. So that's across different kinds of groups of people, for example, or contexts. Mm -hmm. And then from there, the system gives the output that people then act on. And that's where all of the above really starts to come to bear on society. So it's Mm -hmm. like the full system, end to end of the first sort of development, first part of the development life cycle, has the biases interjected at each point where they're slightly different depending on where it is in the life cycle. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Can you give them quite a nice and sharp example of where biases has turned things like muddy? basically. Well, I think that really one of the canonical examples at this point is in face recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, So face recognition already just as a task problematic in a few ways, because it's a biometric. So you can uniquely identify someone like a fingerprint is a biometric. But in Mm -hmm. contrast to a fingerprint, if facial recognition is being used, you don't know if it's being used on you. Right. So with a biometric, like a fingerprint, you're usually consenting unless you did a crime and they're like picking up your mm-hmm. fingerprints yeah. or whatever. But like with face recognition, anyone can be depl- can be using it on you anywhere without you knowing. And that brings with it all kinds of sort of various issues. But before the technology is even in use. It comes from data that has been trained using the same sort of implicit sexism and racism that humans have. And so, for example, the representation of Black people in images was literally muddier until late 90s, actually, you know, mm-hmm. arguably it's still as bad or not as bad, but the the sort of norms for doing color comparisons in order to make sure that your film mm-hmm was Mm -hmm. properly calibrated, was based on white women. And so you end up with images of Black people from when there's color photos being really kind of muddy, hard to tell the difference between different parts of the face, right? And that becomes part of the training data for a system that eventually does face recognition. So what does that mean? It means it finds it much harder to tell the difference between Black people than white people. So that's a human sort of prejudice, stereotype, implicit bias that then gets into the data, that then gets pilled from the model, and that ends up with face recognition that works poorly on Black people. And so now, if you're using that to identify criminals, for example, you're much more likely to be wrong when it's a Black person. So this is sort of the end-to-end example, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I was also reading this unlaunched Amazon product on job screening, basically using AI, and it was biased against women, basically, for all the applications. So I think those are some of the more examples of something like that. So in terms of biases, and this, again, while researching for this episode, I found out and this like blew my mind. So apparently there's something called like a good bias and a bad bias, would you say? So like, in a way that you can't really rob the model of all biases. I mean, you still want the model to associate like a scalpel yeah. with a surgeon and a clothing right. with shopping mall, but you don't want it to associate like a doctor with a male person only, right? Yeah. So it's apparently like selectively choosing, isolating and removing the bad yeah. biases and keeping the good ones. Yeah. So yeah, how do you basically think about that? 
Yeah, you know, there's different kinds of biases, and that confuses the conversation. There's the cognitive biases, the machine learning sort of algorithmic biases, and then there's statistical bias, which is the bias of an estimator. And you can't make predictions unless you bias your estimator. So unless it starts to know that there's a difference between random and and a flower pot, right? That is biasing the estimator towards understanding this is a flower pot. And then this sort of related issue that you're mentioning comes out of it learning, you know, this is this based on the bias of the estimator. But then because of the other effects of cognitive bias and data and stuff, making poor decisions in some cases, especially when it concerns personal identity and things that have to do with like historical prejudice. And so you end up being in a position where you're saying, I don't want it to not know what a flower pot is, but I also want it to be able to like see different people equally well or something like this. And so if I change one, am I going to mess up the other? And the answer is, you can, that's true. So the distinction you make there is between descriptive approaches and normative approaches. For things that are normative, you're asserting, I don't want this bias. I want this bias. I don't want this bias. Those are normative distinctions, Mm -hmm. as opposed to descriptive or a descriptive approach, which simply takes whatever's there, whatever the model has learned and treats that as done. That's all you want. So the goal is to assert normative constraints that map onto what is important for society. And that's when you start making the distinction of, well, doing well on people is Mm -hmm. perhaps much better or more important than making sure you do well on a flower pot. Mm -hmm. And it's a dumb question for me. So who makes the distinction between normative versus descriptive? Is that the AI expert or... Yeah, the developers, you know, engineers and stuff. And a lot of those decisions are just made by like a sole programmer, like making a decision in a code about what variables to use for what. And part of the work in ethical AI is trying to sort of expose that there are a lot of decisions here. And so it shouldn't just be, you know, one or two people sort of half thinking about it as they create a product or create a system, but actually like experts in society, like social scientists Mm -hmm. weighing in on what kinds of things to avoid and what kind of things to prioritize. And so we're starting to see that pick up as ethical AI is sort of becoming its own field. Mm -hmm. Um, But that basically means that the normative distinctions need to be informed by people who understand society in a way that, you know, I could say engineers like me, like often don't. So, yeah. That makes sense. Cool. I mean, I think we spend uh, a little while on the problem. So let's talk about the kind of solutions to some of these biases. You talked about how the field of ethical AI is progressing quite swiftly and there's lots of good stuff happening. Can you tell us what's in the pipeline in terms of frameworks, solutions, how best to deal with transparent AI, how to make AI more transparent? Can you share with us what's popping new in the field? I guess what's popping new for me might be different than what's popping new generally. I think it's important. So like, for me, it's old news that having a diverse and inclusive set of people working on the technology is basically one Mm -hmm. of the the highest priorities that you can do in ethical AI. I think that's more like news to other people, right? So I think that people are (laughs) just starting to realize 
realize how much it matters who's at the table and how much those decisions affect everything coming after that. And then once you can sort of grapple in your mind with diversity and inclusion being a fundamental part of AI development, then you start to get to things like other tools you can use. So around data, around machine learning models to make it a little bit easier for people to be aware of what's going on. And then that is something that can help inform normative decisions and help inform whether or not this technology should exist at all. So tools around data tools around machine mm -hmm. learning, tools mm -hmm. around evaluation are sort of more and more up and coming. And and hopefully, yeah, over the next year, we'll probably see a lot more. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. So I know that every big company nowadays has some kind of self-governance mechanism, like Microsoft has its own kind of AI ethics board, Google and Meta too. Can you firstly kind of lay them out for me and then tell me if they're effective? Yeah. So Microsoft has something called Ether, which is meant to be a board of top-level executives executives, as well as sort of researchers and people who might otherwise have less of a seat at the table. So in spirit, that's what Ether does. I don't know how much the power dynamics end up being equalized in that setting. But that's sort of the idea there that they help to make decisions about whether technology should exist and things like that. Google, kind of a mess. There is a variety of executives at the top who have declared themselves ethics experts. Arguably, they're not so informed by like ethical thinking and ethical processes, but sort of more speaking to the fact that there's a demand for it publicly. Meta, so Meta at Twitter. So there's the uh, there's mm -hmm. this group at Twitter that focuses on like ethics and fairness called Meta, separate okay. from. Oh, Facebook. interesting. Okay. Yeah, cool. mm -hmm. <laughs> it stands for what's the center like machine learning ethics, transparency, and accountability, or something like right. that, or machine ethics, transparency, and accountability. And so they work on different aspects of what gets shown on Twitter and how to improve things that are creating different kinds of inequalities. So what kind of things not to show is an example of the sort of thing that Meta would be working on. How to deal with unfair or biased cropping algorithms. That was one of the first big problems that Meta worked on. I guess an applied group that sort of is where the rubber meets the road in terms of the Twitter platform. Facebook's model is actually somewhat similar to Google's model. Both Google and Facebook, there are very passionate, very brilliant people who are sort of in the lower rungs, who are really prioritizing this product over that product and this sort of project over that and making sure that it aligns to human values in, in various ways. And then there are people at the top who are maybe less interested. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely not a lot of power or less power in what cool, you can cool. do. But yeah, that's, that's sort of, at least given the companies you just mentioned, that's the yeah, lay of the land, I understand it. I think we can do better. In all cases, there have been influences, there has been effects, there's been, you know, positive outcomes. But I think that there's still a wide gap between mm -hmm. the people who work on essentially ethical AI as their job and mm -hmm. what the company actually does. There's still mm -hmm. a pretty wide gap there. So I think we could do a lot better. Makes sense. Moving swiftly on just for the sake of time, really. Let's talk about kind of regulation here. So if I'm a policymaker, should I be thinking about AI model development just like I think about, say, drug development, where there's a lot of regulation 
put around what can be done and what can't be done. So yeah, what should governments basically do about it? What should policymakers do about it? I think in the US, the FDA and the FTC, if you're familiar with the people who deal with regulation of drugs, as you mentioned, and the people who deal with the regulation of technology, their previous work is very relevant here. So with Mm -hmm. drugs, with pharmaceuticals, You want to make sure they're rigorously tested. And that doesn't exist for AI. So ideally, there could be some regulation that says it should be rigorously tested, right? Like similar Mm -hmm. to drugs. So there's definitely a lot of overlaps there and a lot we can learn from the past. Obviously, there's new challenges as well, as a lot of regulators don't fully understand. I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone fully understands what's Mm -hmm. happening in the development of AI. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of sort of artistry to creating regulation for AI and Mm -hmm. not hampering development that would actually make AI more fair. You can kind of like shoot yourself in the foot if you don't fully understand what's going on and create the wrong kind of regulation. And stifle innovation as well. Yeah, I was just going to say you can stifle innovation on removing biases. Yeah, yeah. Any noteworthy mentions of any governments or regulatory authorities that you think are doing a great job or quite advanced or think through this properly? I think the EU has been doing a fantastic job. They've definitely been leading. There's a lot of criticisms about things being underspecified or sort of missing the mark or whatever, but you have to start somewhere. And the EU has started, right? So GDPR... That was several years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. And there were issues with it, but it was a start, right? And since then, they've only gotten better. They've only come to understand more of the complexities of all the parties, how these need to interact, what it means to have interoperability and sharing and transparency. They've really started to get what this is and to write this up in their regulation. UK sort of getting it, but I think maybe they have less people working on it. It doesn't seem to be moving forward as quickly or with, I guess, as much input, I think, that the EU, that's my sort of impression. And US is far behind. I should mention that Singapore has also done a lot of really interesting work in the space. I'm not sure what their regulation is currently, but it's something that the government has prioritized in a way that I haven't seen the US prioritize. That's quite interesting. Since you mentioned Singapore, let's kind of switch topics a little bit. So at Impasco, we work with a lot of startups in the emerging markets, a lot of them really tech. We work with a lot of policymakers in emerging markets as well. That's your kind of Africa, Asia, Latin America as well. So in terms of the field of AI ethics, is there, if I'm a startup kind of building an AI model, say, for in the emerging markets in India or what have you in China, should I think things any differently than what my Western counterparts, ML engineers, would think about when they're creating models? Is there like a distinction or like what's your thinking? Regardless of where you are, the technology that you create is going to end up being picked up all over the world. So I think it's important to take a global view wherever you are, whatever kind of technology you're working on. That said, different countries definitely prioritize different things. And so, you know, you mentioned China, that takes a very different view of surveillance, right, than than the US, right? So US is super independent, like, you know, we love our guns or whatever. Nobody could ever look at us without us knowing whatever. And China is very much like sort of, you know, 
more communal group based, right? And then there tends to be a different view of surveillance, even with sort of the individuals there. And so, you know, different countries will have different cultures with different priorities. So that does affect the kind of regulation there is. But that said, the technology is still used all over the world. So it's important to sort of develop in light of the fact that it can be used anywhere. Yeah. And I guess this goes back to our earlier question at the very beginning, we talked about that it's the human layer that you have to agree on the values and the cultures, and then which feeds off the basic ML model, right, that you're trying to build. And I guess for me, the Chinese model is quite interesting, because a lot of times in the West, we think about tech, okay, cool, very libertarian, you just put it out there. And if something goes wrong, say, oh, okay, cool, it's not the tech, it's humans, right? So it's almost like tech is like a digital mirror of the human shortcomings in a lot of ways. For China, it's interesting to me how they're trying to flip it and use tech to re-architect society in a lot of ways, basically. So how do you think about that? I'm actually a bit careful to opine too much on on any country because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like I've read like some articles or whatever, but I don't really have a deep understanding to the level that I would be comfortable with, you know, compared to AI or something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it just goes back to the fact that governments are a function of culture and culture is going to be different depending on the history and, you know, geography and everything of the places you are. So arguably, one country's approach is maybe anathema to another country's approach or the people there. And maybe if I were in another country, I would view uh, more reconstructive approaches to AI as more positive than I do. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense, really. So last question for me, can you tell me your vision for AI in the next, say, 10, 20 years, the utopian vision first, and then yeah. let's talk about the dystopian vision. Yeah. And then let's talk about what you think is the most realistic vision. I think a more utopian vision would be one where the role that AI plays is augmentative and assistive. Mm-hmm. So people are still in charge of what's going on. Definitely nothing is happening without them being aware of it. But technology provides a way to enable people who otherwise would not be enabled to do things. And here I think mm-hmm. a lot about ability status. I worked on technology to describe the visual world for people who are blind, for example. So there's a lot of ways forward where technology plays a role in helping people to be better, perhaps even correcting their human biases or helping to correct Mm -hmm. their human biases. I think a dystopian world is going to be one where AI is in the driver's seat, where it's making the decisions without the intervention of different people, in part because an AI's decision is much Mm -hmm. more likely to be the same all over the world because we're using the same techniques, whereas Mm -hmm. people are all kind of different. If something is wrong, you can usually appeal to another person who might see things differently. That's not the case with AI. It's sort of that's Mm -hmm. the final decision. And that can make fundamentally unequal societies. Virginia Eubanks has this great book in Automating Inequality, where she goes into these kinds of details. So yeah, that would be the more Mm -hmm. dystopian part of that. Mm -hmm. And what's your realistic one? What do you think might likely happen, given Um, how things are going at this pace. Yeah. Yeah. So my co-lead at Google, Timnit Gabru, was fired about a year ago, a year and a couple days. Until that point, I thought it was very much heading in a dystopian direction. I think Timnit's firing actually catalyzed a lot of interest in ethical AI in a Mm -hmm. way that there hadn't been before. And so it's actually given me a bit more hope that people can start to see that technology and AI should play a more assistive role and not just be making decisions. 
So I'm hoping that it'll be more of a balance between the two. Automation bias. Oh, I can't talk about that. I'll go on forever. But yeah, I mean, I think the middle of the road is going to be there's still people in organizations using technology in really problematic ways. There's still going to be people trying to correct for that. And there's going to be people using AI in ways that are, are fundamentally beneficial. I think it'll just be sort of a mix you know, sort of indefinitely with what AI is changing and evolving over time. My last question is, I just saw your tweet about your open source AI product. Do you want to tell us what's next for you? What's in the pipeline? What's coming? What are you working on? Yeah. So part of why I actually need to leave this podcast quickly is because we're about to launch a tool that I've been working on for a while with two of my colleagues at Hugging Face. I'm really excited about it because it's my first time sharing my actual code, you know, the code that I wrote with the entire world to use as a product, like as a company's product. But basically what we're doing is we're creating a tool for people to be able to develop data sets and analyze data sets and compare data sets and measure them. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of concern in ethical AI work about how data sets are constructed, you know, and the biases they're in. So our vision is that people, regardless of background, can build data sets, can curate data sets in order to address different kind of normative goals. And that means you need something like a no-code interface, something that doesn't require you to be an engineer, in order to look at what you need to build up in the data set, what the issues are, and iterate with data set development. And so we're building and releasing hopefully today, uh, a tool that does that. And it further helps to compare across different data sets according to different kinds of measures relevant to fairness, relevant to humanness and things like that. So you can understand sort of the pros and cons of different data sets, even if you're not an engineer. No matter who you are, you should just be able to sort of click around and see. And so that's what we're trying to do, like really open up the space of data development so anyone can do it and anyone can see where the issues are and what needs to be strengthened. Cool. And there are a couple of other no-code tools like Data Robot and stuff. And how is this kind of different to that? In the general space of no-code, I think there's mm-hmm. there's generally what happens is there's a user interface and then it does like code in the background. I mean, they're all going to sort of share that. In this situation, it's essentially that we have a module, a widget corresponding to a different function. I don't know how to describe what a function is in a code. That's going to be tricky. But like a block of code that does something that takes an input and puts out an output. And there's a lot of those in code in a big system. And so essentially what we're doing Mm -hmm. uh, for each of those little functions that take input and output, we are making that something that a user can now upload instead of having to code in input and download instead of having to extract via some bash script or something like that. So it's still, it's a light interface over the code, but it opens it up. So you don't need to know how to program. Okay, cool. Well, that's fantastic. Looking forward to using it then. Margaret, thank you so much for joining our podcast. And we hope to have you soon again. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.